everyone, it's Chelsea. Welcome to another episode of Out Loud. Before we get started, I just wanted to give you some information about autism and selective mutism, which is what the topic of this week's episode is going to be. So, autism is a lifelong developmental disability that affects how a person communicates and relates to other people and how they experience the world around them. That's from the National Autistic Society. Selective mutism is a severe anxiety disorder where a person is unable to speak in certain social situations despite their ability to communicate freely in others. The purpose of this episode is to talk about the similarities and differences with selective mutism and autism. Just keep in mind that each individual with autism or each individual with selective mutism is very individual and there is a broad spectrum for each diagnosis. So it's important to get an evaluation that looks into all factors when getting a diagnosis. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome back to Out Loud, the Selective Mutism Podcast. I'm Chelsea. Today we have a special guest, Dr. Elisa Shippenbloom, who is a board-certified physician who specializes in selective mutism. She's the president and director of Selective Mutism Anxiety and Related Disorders Treatment Center, the SMART Center. She is the founder and director of Selective Mutism Association and director of Selective Mutism Research Institute. She also developed the evidence-based social communication anxiety treatment, SCAT. So welcome back. We're so glad to have you back on. Thank you. And just so you know, we work with adults and teenagers. So as the years have gone on, more and more teens and adults are contacting us. Mm -hmm. So it's by no means just children anymore. That's great. There's so much need for treatment for adults and teens. So that's great. So today we're going to be talking about the autism diagnosis and selective mutism. This topic comes up a lot with the families that I've talked to, where I think people are confused between the two diagnoses and how they overlap and whether one can exist without the other or can they exist together. So I thought we could compare the two and talk about the similarities and differences. Yeah, I think that where a lot of this comes in is that when you take a child or a teen and they're not comfortable, you know, whether they have selective mutism and or autism and somebody they don't know evaluates them, a child that has selective mutism um, may present as autistic because they're not able to engage, communicate, they seem shut down. Um, I can tell you in my own personal experience that why I'm so passionate is my own child was misdiagnosed with um, autism and being intellectually impaired and mm-hmm. that was not my child. And that's because the people evaluating her were just did not know how to understand. So this has been ongoing and we see so many individuals that have selective mutism that don't have autism, but are diagnosed with autism and individuals that are diagnosed with selective mutism when in reality they do have autism. But I will say that if you view selective mutism as a social communication anxiety disorder and not focus on the word mutism, I think that kind of helps clarify Chelsea. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that's why we see so many individuals who are on the spectrum is that we see this as the social communication anxiety where there's factors into it and that's where the similarities come in as to figuring out you know the social communication skills Mm -hmm. uh, their speech and language their sensory their learning styles and when you start to see some of these factors and you realize 
it's more than just quote unquote shyness, you start to see, hmm, what else could this be? And we've mm -hmm. studied uh, selective mutism and we've seen comorbidities and different developmental disorders that occur with kids that present with selective mutism. So there's absolutely an overlap. And I like to see it almost as a spectrum in itself, that SM mm -hmm. is a spectrum. It's yeah. not about not speaking and there's severity of even when you focus on not speaking. So that's why I think that this is a great topic. Yeah, I think what helps me understand it more, um, correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not 100% sure, but, but what helps me tell the difference between the two is that autism is like a lifelong diagnosis where as selective mutism, you can um, pretty much overcome. So if I view selective mutism from a social communication perspective. And one of the things that I think I was just taught this, mm -hmm. Chelsea, as a physician to kind of figure out why and not just treat a symptom. And that's how I came about it because I was trained right. that way. So when we would, um, when Selective Mutism Association was started and we'd see all these different types of individuals that presented that weren't just mute, but there were all these other factors. Some of them were engaging, some of them weren't engaging, some were shut down. Um, some were able to point and nod, and there was just all of these presentations. Some had learning challenges, some had social skill deficits, some did not. So there isn't a one size obviously fits all. And so SM being a social communication anxiety, you're absolutely right. You know, autism is um, a pervasive developmental disorder, and it's a neurodevelopmental disorder that does last a lifetime, and helping these individuals become more functioning and accommodate their challenges is obviously a goal. But a lot of individuals with selective mutism have, again, I call it social communication anxiety disorder. I don't like the term SM and people that know me know that. I don't and either. <laughs> it just, it just, as you know, it just, it really just talks about the child being selectively quote unquote mute when there's so much more to these individuals. And when I consult with families and our centers working with individuals, so many times a family will say, you know what, we didn't even talk about about talking during this session but mm -hmm. as a result of understanding this child or a teen we were able to progress this child into or a teen into speech and so I think if we see it as a social communication anxiety Chelsea mm -hmm. and we see that 37 percent of the individuals that we worked with and studied had developmental delays had delays um, there's past studies that showed as high as 68 percent had delays so of those delays, 42% had expressive language difficulties, 81% yeah. had either language or speech difficulties. Individuals have fine and gross motor difficulties that we see. I mean, it really does. 82% um, had deficits in at least one area of sensory processing. Yeah. So yes, you can overcome the mutism and you can become a more confident social communicator, but if you have an innate speech and language issue, that may be with you for a while until it's addressed. If you have sensory issues, that too yeah. needs to be accommodated. And again, we see these delays. So I don't like to see selective mutism as just not speaking because then, yeah, you can get an individual to speak, but people end up reaching a wall, Chelsea, if they don't understand those factors and the child isn't able to overcome it, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. It's interesting. I've also noticed um, that anxiety, all these autistic traits or sometimes challenging behavior we see with autistic individuals are rooted in anxiety. So I think that is part of the overlap between selective mutism and autism. Absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, and then we try to figure out like where is the anxiety coming from? Mm -hmm. And that's that example I think I might have even shared with you before where someone presents with a fever and it's like, okay, well, person A, B, and C all have fevers, but I don't give them the same medication or treatment. I need to figure out why they have a fever. And that's how I see anxiety. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's a social communication anxiety. However, yeah. where is that anxiety coming from? Are they yeah. timid? Do they have some of these delays that are frustrating and causing them stress? Do they become sensory overloaded yeah. or shut down? That all causes anxiety, not to mention you know, misunderstanding and pressuring a child or mm -hmm. enabling a child. So there's so many different factors into the anxiety. So one big key feature that's um, interesting, like some features, I guess I could say, is that a lot of individuals with selective mutism have or social communication anxiety. Again, we see it as a spectrum. The majority have appropriate social skills, right? They don't need to be taught social skills. I call it comfort building. So by building comfort, that golden rule of comfort precedes communication and progress doesn't happen in a group. Mm -hmm. They have appropriate skills, Chelsea. Whereas individuals, obviously, we know on the autism spectrum, they may not and they don't. So that social skill deficit is a really strong way to differentiate, um, you know, with the nitty gritty too, right. because a lot of individuals, once we get them comfortable and we do comfort building and we do some basic strategies, the children, you know, are appropriate with peer. They can have reciprocal back and forth conversation, even with delays. It doesn't mean they can't have like kind of typical or more neurotypical be, uh, reciprocal back and forth interactions. And we know that's a really kind of a key factor in autism that's really challenging. So um, that's definitely an area. Also, um, intrinsic motivation. Individuals with SM that I see typically will be more intrinsically motivated as they get older to want mm -hmm. to change. I see a lot of kids on the spectrum that they the intrinsic motivation may not be there. They don't mm -hmm. necessarily know the value or understand the value as they get older. It's more just like kind of immediate. Um, gratification right. for that long-term. Well, if I do this, then I'll be able to make friends. And if I make friends, I'll be able to feel more comfortable. Or if I do this, I'll be able to get a job and then be able to maybe, oh, maybe I'll, if I do this, I'll be able to drive. Like that, those multiple steps are often missing too. Mm -hmm. So that's like kind of an interesting feature as well. So I'm trying to get a picture, like, do you come across individuals with both diagnoses often? We do. And it may be because when families are calling our center, they're asking our philosophy and that maybe a more typical behavioral approach, um, you know, has reached a wall. And sometimes that like what else is happening here could be causing it. We see families that never put two and two together or we work with schools and they never put two and two together that the, the learning challenges, the sensory processing challenges and or the language challenges mm -hmm. are contributing to why an individual has a social communication abnormality such as selective mutism. So if you're not able to process what's being said to you in the environment, you get shut down, you get overwhelmed. Um, you're, you know, there's a variety of reasons and factors into why someone develops selective mutism. You know, the typical dictionary case of a shy child is just a percentage of the individuals we work with. Mm -hmm. So once we start to put those pieces together, oh my gosh, that's why putting her thoughts together to say them is difficult. So having reciprocal back forth conversation is very difficult. Mm -hmm. And so we have to actually teach many of these individuals that have 
uh, more of a, uh, I wouldn't say so much a developmental delay, but the social communication deficits that go on over time due to some of these sensory issues and or language issues and or processing issues. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so they, they almost don't know how to do it because people have either enabled them or they have had lack of opportunity. Right. So we actually have to teach these individuals with selected mutism, as you say, it with just that, that can overcome it, how to have back and forth conversations. I mean, we have families, we have adults we're working with that we're teaching them how to have conversation beyond hi, or hi, how are you, or I'm doing this, or I'm doing that, kind of that ping pong, ping pong ball effect. So even individuals that aren't on the spectrum often need to become more initiative, more elaborative, more expressive, and more kind of reciprocal with conversation, because as the years went on, they didn't do it. So it isn't just about lowering anxiety. Yeah, I think from my experience, my social skills were um, pretty typically developed, but I think I had trouble with friendships and initiating friendships without someone taking the initiative to come to me and be my friend. So I'm thinking sometimes people with selective mutism may be lacking in those kinds of skills just because they didn't get that practice. Yeah, and I think as they get older, it gets even more obvious, right? Right, because you're kind of learning only through observation and you're not getting to practice as much with your peers. So, yeah, so when the children are younger and they aren't on the spectrum and they have more what I call, you know, developmentally appropriate social skills and it's more comfort building, if that didn't occur um, for a variety of reasons, then, yes, as children get older, they don't have that back and forth reciprocal social interaction and conversation skills. So, yes, so even individuals that are not on the spectrum, as they get older, the teens and adults, they say exactly what you say as on their wish list of how do I start a conversation? How do I get into a conversation? Uh, What do I say when, you know, they ask me a question? How do I, you know, even, you know, I always say it's like the cocktail party phenomenon. Like you (laughs) go to the cocktail party, you know no one. What do you do? What do you say? And so I will say that a really great, skill to learn with that is finding an area of interest that you like and as you get older connecting with those individuals with areas of interest whether it's playing chess or whether it's uh learning to juggle or whether it's um you know enjoying to volunteer and you know working with animals and the math club the chess club it doesn't really matter but that's where a lot of my teens and adults find their people Mm -hmm. is by having areas of interest. Whereas when they're little, it's set them up with play dates and get togethers and some small groups and friendship groups. And, you know, voila, at least they're doing something led by an adult. Yeah. That's a big, um, that's a big thing with autism as well, because people with autism tend to have special interests where they're like really into some kind of hobby or passion And that's something you can really connect over and get them talking about. Oh, yeah. It's interesting because we'll have these kids that are quote unquote selectively mute and will come in and you can be diagnosed with selective mutism and autism. And the family would say, well, he doesn't talk in school at all. He doesn't talk to anyone. He comes in and he'll bring, I'll say, well, we'll say like bring some of his favorite things. And I'm thinking of this one little boy in particular. He happened to like these like rocks. And he brought these little rocks in that all meant something to him. As soon as he took the rocks out, boom, he started having full conversation (laughs) about his rocks. 
And that's the other thing that's also interesting is that I find that kids on the spectrum, individuals on the spectrum, when they have those areas of interest, that's how you get them to communicate. Mm-hmm. And they can initiate, but they're not necessarily able to respond well. So right. they'll initiate a full almost dissertation, as I call it, on their <laughs> areas of interest. But you start asking them kind of common questions, and that's where you lose them. They right. just kind of shut down, and they don't know how to respond. So we have to actually work through kind of like the conversation starters, but common questions and what we call action plans Uh and teach them, you know, who's going to be there? What could they ask? What would be your answer? What could you ask? And actually work them through these scenarios. And and that's how they have to learn. It's not innate for so many of them. Right. And when teaching social skills, um, especially with people on the spectrum, uh, we usually have to teach about conversations being give and take and when it's your turn to talk when it's my turn to talk um, like timing knowing when to enter a conversation those can all be kind of challenging for people on the spectrum sometimes oh for sure and then like in younger kids because we know that reciprocal conversations go with individuals with sm can be hugely challenging especially as they get older we introduce at very young ages I mean, even as young as three years old, ways to have reciprocal back, forth, back, forth, because if you don't, everyone talks for them and does for them. Their friends talk for them. Their parents talk for them. Mm -hmm. Their teachers talk for them. They don't ask questions because they're afraid if they ask questions, it'll make the child anxious. So from a young age, it's really important to get that reciprocal give, take, even if they're on the bridge and they're in the nonverbal handing, taking. And that's another key feature is that social engagement. So with the reciprocal back and forth, give, take, And I think this is kind of similar to what you were saying, where as you get older, you almost don't know how to do it. And you feel really anxious just from your, your kind of insecurity of having these kind of reciprocal conversations. And that's why when they're little, if we could get them to do these back forth reciprocal activities, whether it's kind of games as they're little through like guessing their favorite characters and being a big shot and knowing that answer to kind of back and forth interview based questions based on their interest and age. And you really implement that into school based accommodations and interventions for our kids with SM. It only benefits the kids with autism because if they are on the spectrum, they still need to work on that too. And that's why this will work also this, these philosophies also work with uh, autism. Yeah. Going back to special interests. um, When I was a kid, if you were talking about cats or Harry Potter, I was on board. Like I was way more likely to talk and it was something that I like to talk about. Yeah. So that was your area. That was your big shot role. That was your confidence. You knew everything you knew about Harry Potter, but me, I get really insecure. If you start asking me about Harry Potter, I have to go to my, (laughs) my kids in my practice and start developing back and forth interviews where they, you know, they feel like a big shot and I have no idea what Uh the answers are. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> well, I get it. Yeah, no, see, that's the whole thing. Giving them these like big shot leadership roles, areas they feel confident in. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, that's exactly right. It, it lowers their anxiety to do the strategies needed to build the social communication confidence. Yeah, I'm trying to think of clients that I've had before. And I've worked with mostly nonverbal or minimally verbal individuals who are on the autism spectrum. And I have had some clients who are, when they're with me, who they know very well and they've worked with for a long time, they're requesting, they're letting me know things, they're commenting on things, they're initiating. And then maybe someone who doesn't know them as well comes around and asks them a question. 
and they don't they don't respond and i think that can look like selective mutism um, but it also has to do with your history with that person and whether you've accomplished or you've received reinforcement from that person and you have that history i'm just trying to figure out how you would recognize selective mutism in somebody who is minimally verbal, like someone on the spectrum who communicates very little, but there is that difference in different situations. Like, how do you go from someone with an autism diagnosis and diagnosing selective mutism on top of that? And I would say that we have to go to their developmental age. So I had a 16-year-old chronologically, he was 16 years old, but he was functioning at a five-year-old level. And so, yes, he was on the spectrum and everything we did was at his developmental level. Um, so he was mute. But once you, you know, started to do similar type strategies, using visuals, um, doing his social engagement work, handing, taking, frontline, training mm -hmm. parents to step back, awareness to his sensory of loud, large, lots of people environments, he was able to speak. And here's the other thing that's interesting. A lot of individuals on the spectrum... And, and again, I'm, I'm by no means being general here, okay? But I have seen in my practice that the awareness to the reasons for their not talking, like a lot of kids with selective mutism, let's say, that don't have autism are very aware of the sense of expectation, like really mm -hmm. cognitively aware, like, yeah. you know, and it's almost like they stop speaking because of that incredible sense of expectation. Whereas kids on the autism spectrum, Oh, yes, can have some of that, but by, by far, it's usually these other reasons that are exaggerated, like their sensory processing that shuts them mm -hmm. down, their, right. their lack of language skills, their inability to socially engage, their lack of social skills that prevents the verbalization. And so if they have the ability to be verbal, again, do they have the ability to be verbal? Because the higher functioning they are, the more verbal they'll obviously become, but they'll we'll help them reach their potential. You know, that's the whole beauty of it. It's not that we're going to have, you know, and that's something we, you know, it's tough with parents that want their child to overcome their quote unquote autism and we can help them reach their potential. And, um, but I think that, you know, to answer your question, it's what is that child's capability, Chelsea? Mm -hmm. What are they able to do best case scenario? And that's what we hope to get them to, to be at to reach that point. If yeah. they're not able to have expressive narrative detailed initiative speech at home ever where they're comfortable or in any environment, then it's an unrealistic thing to expect that. And I'd say in the last month, I've had three different families of different ages where they came for treatment for quote unquote selective mutism because someone said they had selective mutism. And yes, they are mute in at least one setting, like a public setting, and they can speak at home, but guess what? All three of them had incredibly restricted language skills. Mm -hmm. they, they were not able to be elaborative and um, responsive to common type questions. They would like shoot out a word here or there. Uh, one of them could talk about an interest, but didn't respond if you asked them basic questions about what they wanted to eat or drink. They just didn't speak. They weren't able to be to have reciprocal back forth conversation. They almost just said a word or two. Now that individual, I cannot get that individual if for 15 years of his life, he's never been able to do that, to become now an individual who is able to have typical 
15 year old yeah it's interesting too um i guess only from my experience that the people i've worked with who have autism who are minimally verbal um sometimes when you introduce like an alternative form of communication like an aac device um all of a sudden language kind of blooms and um they're able to communicate in a a much larger sense which is wonderful um because we want them to be able to get their wants and needs met and connect with other people but i've been seeing this like alternative communication being used with selective mutism as well so i'm wondering what you think about that is speech always the ultimate goal or do we want any communication helping them become the most confident social communicators they can become helping them reach their potential by utilizing parents as kind of coaches and facilitators and the same as teachers you know we often have individuals pushing these kids or not or enabling their lack of social communication so a big piece of what we do is training parents and teachers and professionals on how to help that individual you know progress and that's where you know, the bridge comes in because of the different stages of being shut down and not engaging to nonverbal responsive initiative to that transitional stage, which comes into play with using sounds to translate into words, but also the use of an intermediary. But the augmentative devices that you mentioned are in the transitional stage. It's Mm -hmm. to help an individual that isn't able to speak comfortably or maybe even has the ability to use an augmentative device to progress. Now for that individual that can speak, that has skills, that has skills to speak, the augmentative devices in my mind are for two reasons. They're one to allow school-based accommodations to be able to function in school and a step in the process to becoming verbal. So again, I go back to what is that individual's capability? What are they able to do? How much are we going those augmentative devices if within a school environment they're not they're not they're completely nonverbal at the time and those devices allow them to function to get their needs known to be able to participate and so forth then by all means we do it but if they have the ability to be verbal maybe in one setting they're using their augmentative device but maybe in a different setting they're working with a counselor and or a peer and they are using different strategies to progress into speech and one thing that you mentioned was the use of visuals and um, and also hearing. Like one of the things that's common amongst any individual that's anxious and also, you know, selectively mute and being on the spectrum is the ability to process in a moment of being like overwhelmed or mm-hmm. social anxiety or for whatever reason. So if we can minimize their need to think and process such as having those visuals, like you mentioned with pecs, like we do a lot of scripting. We have visuals for young children, pictures with words. Uh, Individuals are prompted to write and show Mm -hmm. or write and read as a way to help them with the processing. That is a definite strategy that's very, very popular. And we teach teachers how to use it and when. The same with parents, with out and about in the real world. So and hearing those choices, you know, you hear from so many professionals Forced choice question, forced choice question. I'm about forced choice questions. However, the purpose of the forced choice question in my mind is that it gives that individual the answer right then and there. So it minimizes their need to think and process. So they're able to respond quicker, even if it's nonverbal. 
Um, and then by doing repetitive common questions in different areas, these individuals begin to process those common questions. Like it's Halloween now, right? So people are gonna ask questions to children about Halloween. Mm -hmm. So we prepare them for that. So using augmentative devices to go back to that is a step in the process or it's a way to help an individual that maybe isn't able to be verbal in a setting because that's their highest potential that they might be able to say a word, but they're not able to be expressive and narrative because that's not something that they can do because of, let's say they are on the spectrum or they have very, very severe expressive or receptive language deficits. Yeah. I, know, I can go on and on, Chelsea. You gotta just stop me. <laughs> I know you've got a, so much crammed in that brain. <laughs> oh. Oh so many years it just I want to get it out (laughs) I know I love it though I think it's really helpful so I had another question about SCAT can SCAT be adapted for someone with autism as well as selective mutism yeah so SCAT social communication anxiety treatment is specifically about helping an individual become a more confident social communicator and rather than focusing on speaking Mm -hmm. right them rewards for speaking, we have to assess where are they on the bridge. So SCAT is about finding, it, it's, it's a whole person approach. It isn't treating to speak and it's using very behavioral strategies, um, uh, very CBT based for those individuals that can do that. So with autism, you know, finding their baseline stages of social communication and SM is really, we call that the sky, the social communication anxiety inventory. What are they like at home with their parents, responding, initiating with peers, with relatives? What are they like at parties and gatherings? What are they like with teachers one-on-one and peers one-on-one in groups, small and large? What are they like in the real world with waiters, waitresses, store clerks, and so mm-hmm. forth? Get a baseline stage. So are they nonverbal all the way down? Are they shut down? Then we begin to be able to move. However, that goes into the factors. If a child or an individual or an adult has sensory processing challenges and or language process challenges, um, you know, there's, it, it just really is about accommodating that. So if a child is with autism or working with a teenager on the spectrum and every time they leave their house and they go to Target to practice their goals at two o'clock on a Saturday, hey, no, you go to quieter, less crowded, smaller environments avoiding loud large lots of people environments will help individuals on the spectrum and any of our sensory sensitive kids that don't have autism also knowing that rewards intrinsic rewards of the motivation to want to speak may be limited in kids with autism they're more extrinsically based like Mm -hmm. reward right away to do something rather than building up their rewards over time yeah they need more of that kind of instant gratification. Yeah, and we usually pair that with social reinforcement, like praise, um, so that that social praise on its own is reinforcing. Praise is tough for many of them, and they're very cognitively aware. They're thinking through it, and when someone praises me, that means they're happy with what I did. Now what are you going to expect of me? That's called fear of positive evaluation, and I don't see that in the autism um, spectrum individuals. They don't have that as much. So it's more of, yes, you praise them more and they will respond easier, frankly, than individuals that um, have that fear of positive evaluation and are thinking through everything there is to think through. There's definitely different kinds of social praise too. Like I've had clients who don't like 
that like over the top like congratulations you are so awesome like just a high five will do yeah no for sure so I think with what you were saying about adapting SCAT I think it's really the same philosophies mm-hmm. are the same it's really about figuring out those factors and then on the autism spectrum you have these multiple delays and you know you have to understand that they have the social, you know, the social interaction challenges, their, their fixation on different objects, mm-hmm. their, their need for routines, their splinter skills where they have yeah. a very high interest in different areas. They're very strong emotional reactions at times. They're very strong sensory reactions at times. And so we have to adapt that into the treatment, right? We have to help families from a you know, set, uh, helping them with structure, consistency, routine, and predictability. We have to help them with charting and behavioral charts and mm-hmm. calendar charts to help these individuals feel in control. And, you know, we have to adapt the treatment to these challenges that individuals with the autism spectrum, but that goes along with that whole child approach and not treating. Right. To, right. And we still have to teach individuals, as you were mentioning with SM that don't have the autism spectrum symptoms um, that aren't on the spectrum rather to be able to socially engage, to be able to engage handing, taking frontline training parents to step back. It's no different for kids Mm -hmm. on the spectrum. It's just adapting it to their factors into why. And that's what we, I mean, all the research that we've done and we hope to continue to do are showing that individuals that have selected mutism aren't just shy. They're not just mute. And I think that's one of the biggest things that if I could get anything across in my lifetime, it's that SM is so much more than not speaking. And when you focus on speaking, you often reinforce their mutism because there's so much attention to it. When if you understand why they're not verbalizing and back it up and figure out the various stages and strategies to help that child from a desensitizing standpoint, from a behavioral standpoint, from a cognitive standpoint, really, really work with them. I mean, we help individuals understand the bridge and understand their feelings. Now with kids on the spectrum, they, depending on their cognitive level, um, it is difficult sometimes they, to really have that understanding of the feelings. So that's also a difference to really get them to rate and grade their feelings. It, it can be very challenging. So yeah. we definitely have to adapt the tr- treatment that way too. Right. So as like an end goal, like say someone who has an autism diagnosis as well as a selective mutism diagnosis, and maybe they can only communicate using like three word sentences, even when they're most comfortable. Um, Obviously you wouldn't expect them to speak in full sentences at school when they can only speak in three word sentences when they're most comfortable. And that's exactly right. And that's what you try to help them reach their potential. But in, you know, that golden rule of having a comfort, like you were saying about the clients that you've seen, that that relationship with you, but then they see someone else and they shut down. So comfort preceding communication and that progress doesn't happen in a large group. So if an individual is in class, you know, you're not going to see that progress in the midst of a class. And for all the individuals on the spectrum that we've worked with, they're not, they may be, they're bridging down in that larger class, they having an aide, having um, someone to help them to because they often need that facilitation um, more than just the teacher coming and asking a question, you know, knowing to ask, you know, a certain number of questions a day and knowing where that individual is on this on the bridge. Mm-hmm. A lot of the kids I work with on the spectrum really do need a lot more facilitation, obviously, in their classroom mm-hmm. sizes are 
much, much smaller. So yes, you know, training those professionals on how to get them to be able to use those three words, but knowing that that comfort and what strategies they're using, because sometimes they do get used to not speaking within the school environment. And once you take them away from, you know, what is that, you know, comfort proceeds communication, yep. progress doesn't happen in a group. So we have to build comfort and do strategies away from the group through the buddy process, the small groups in the room out of the room and that get togethers like away from the group in itself i mean we have to implement all of that but it's how do we adapt individual get to those three words as an end goal but we have to be aware that if they're very sensory sensitive which most of the kids on the spectrum are with sensory sensitivities that in that classroom they may be very easily distracted because of all that's going on so it's about adapting their environment right. and applying accommodations and interventions to meet that individual at their stage. So is SCAT ever used for someone without a selective mutism diagnosis, like just autism or anxiety? SCAT is social communication anxiety treatment. So it's about helping that individual become a more socially communicative being and more Mm -hmm. confident. So there has to be something that's affecting their social communication confidence. So if they're shy or socially anxious, absolutely. We have tons of individuals that don't have the diagnosis of selective mutism, but we have to help them become more engaging, more expressive, more initiative, helping them with conversation starters, making friends, all those Mm -hmm. things. And that's part of SCAT, but it also helps individuals with, you know, different various language difficulties to help them become more expressive and narrative and detailed because when their anxiety gets high, um, they have difficulty. It makes their, if they have an underlying speech and language difficulty, it makes that even more difficult to be able to do it because their anxiety prevents them. And we've studied this. Mm -hmm. Uh, 82% of the individuals we work with have either a language or speech disorder. That's a lot of individuals, 81%. So we see that. So yeah, being very timid, being very socially anxious, speech and language challenges, being on the spectrum, social communication, pragmatic disorder, anything that gets in the way of social communication, that's how we are adapting SCAT. And Mm -hmm. so yes, we treat SM and that's our primary um, difficulty. But again, I go back to what is SM, right? SM is a social communication anxiety disorder. And that's why all of these individuals that have these other challenges are finding us and have found us because we don't just treat mutism. And so I think that just naturally occurred over time when, you know, some of the typical approaches were not necessarily working and then diving in to figure out those whys and those factors um, and adapting that. And, and the experts in the field know that there isn't, it isn't just about not speaking and that they do often address those, those challenges. And that's something that to really help an individual become that, not a confident social communicator. And again, I say reach their potential because it is about reaching their potential and knowing what a child or, or a teen or adult is like in home when they're comfortable, mm-hmm. that is a benchmark for what can they be able to do. Now that of course is the majority of individuals, but sometimes there's environmental factors or other reasons why somebody may not be as communicative at home, but what was their potential at their most comfortable time? Mm-hmm. I think that if you were to say to a family member, like, what, you know, how do you know, like, right away what it is, and you don't always know, but an individual that's autistic, that's on the autism spectrum has on the autism spectrum within the home environment, right? They're going to have those 
you know, so social interaction issues at home. They're going to have many of them, not all of them, some of these unusual interests and focuses, mm -hmm. the difficulties with changes in routine, the splinter skills, perhaps. So you have to really look at these other kind of features and more of a pervasive developmental challenge that many individuals that um, have the typical selective mutism, as I call it, don't have. Yeah. But they will often with social interaction have, you know, anxiety, they may lack eye contact, yep. they may not be verbal, they may have sensory sensitivities, even if the individuals we work with that have selective mutism don't have sensory processing disorder, Chelsea, many of them have sensory sensitivities and they're mm -hmm. highly sensitive people. Right. Now, some of the individuals we see with selective mutism that aren't on the spectrum have learning difficulties, the most common being a processing challenge, have underlying speech and language issues, but again, are not on the spectrum. So it's really about doing a really thorough evaluation to know, is this autism? And one thing that our center does is we've expanded to all, all the disorders for mental um, and emotional disorders um, and developmental challenges because we weren't just seeing the quote unquote selected mutism. So we do these, you know, in-depth developmental testing, these psychological testing, these, um, we test for autism. We do the ADIR, we do the ADOS, we do this testing because sometimes, especially as kids are younger, it's not as clear cut and schools are trying to make determinations with IEPs and so forth. Mm -hmm. Is it individual on the spectrum? And I can't tell you how many times, Chelsea, we'll see somebody at 13, 14, 15, and they are on the spectrum and they never ever were diagnosed with right. autism. Yeah. I have like mixed feelings about the autism diagnosis. Um, I guess it feels like it's kind of based on the male profile of autism. Um, and there used to be the Asperger's diagnosis, which was completely based on male male individuals so but we don't see that a lot in women and i think it's harder for women to be diagnosed as autistic you're right and we do see these individuals like i was saying at the very beginning that have autism but have been funneled through selective mutism and rewarding to speak and right. they did not put the pieces together and didn't understand and a lot of these individuals that have autism, I mean, they, they just didn't have their needs met. So now it's like, well, we have to step back and kind of redirect this process. Mm -hmm. And they are on the spectrum. And can you imagine what it's like talking to a parent of a teen that you clearly see has autism features and you clearly see this as an issue, but for whatever reason, they blamed it or saw it as a selected mutism because whoever made that diagnosis just that was funneled through the system. Mm -hmm. So it's really difficult to have some of these really tough conversations. Um, yeah. yeah, like especially with women and girls who are seem to be diagnosed later on in life with autism. Um, it must be hard to go through life without understanding that you fit that diagnosis until you're a teen or adult. Right. And sometimes it's a relief to know, you yeah. know, what is because it's like, okay, now this makes sense. This is why this is hard for me. From my experience, I've had traits that could be seen as like part of autism, but mostly have to do with sensory processing. And um, I, I recently had Maureen on from the highlysensitivechild.com, and we talked about high sensitivity, and I think I fit that um, profile really well. So it was really interesting to hear more about that. You know, we saw Lucas, he was 
you know, and she, this is not something I'm revealing. She tells people this, but yeah, that's how he presented with his sensory. That was his overwhelming presentation. And, and that's what we see in a lot of our individuals, this sensory processing, like you said, um, and my daughter too, the same thing. She's very highly sensitive. And, and so that seems to be a very, very common feature, you know, with individuals with selected mutism, 30 to 35% Chelsea of the individuals we work with ha are picky eaters. They're sensitive mm -hmm. to smells. They're sensitive to touch and hair brushing and touch and yep. another 25% to like crowds. And so you put that all together and that's a pretty big percentage yeah. of individuals. And, you know, that's just meeting a criteria, but you know, you could be under those, you could still be sensory sensitive and not be in those figures because they didn't meet the quote unquote you know, disorder, so to speak. Right. By far, so many individuals are highly sensitive. And this is why it's so confusing to so many individuals. Is it SM? Is it autism? Is it both? And that's where a really good evaluation, um, you know, is, is needed because you do need to differentiate and really figure out that individual's specific characteristics and unique needs because right. you can't need to speak. I can't tell you how many people are like, well, I think he has SM. Can you just tell me what to do? It's like, no. We don't know your file. We, don't, we, can't right. give you, we have no idea. Where is he on the bridge? What are the factors? You know, mm -hmm. what's the parenting dynamics? You know, there's so right. many different features. I hope this was helpful to you. Yeah. Because there's so much to say. And we can just <laughs> have like a whole roundtable discussion I know. about this. But, um, you know, I used to hear you can't have, be diagnosed with selective mutism and autism. And that is just not true. You absolutely can. You just have to adapt treatment appropriately. Right. Yeah. And based accommodations and interventions. Yeah. I think it's been very helpful. I think I love doing these with you, Chelsea. <laughs> we can do more. <laughs> I would love to do more. I just love it because I feel like this is my, you know, I've been a physician for, you know, 30 years and I've been doing SM for the last 25 years, 24 years of living and breathing this because of my own child. And it's like, there's so much stuff in here, Chelsea. Yeah. I do better talking about it than I do just writing it all out. And as much as we have written out, the more I can talk, I feel like that's sharing what's in my head with yeah. the world. And I don't know how else to get it out. And since I <laughs> yeah. don't have trouble using my words, that's my like hope and gift is to be able to just get it out. So I am always loving to do this. You have good expressive language, right? <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Out Loud. Go leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and join us next time.